Hello there, beautiful people of the universe. How is everybody doing today? It has been a minute since I have been on my podcast, and I know I am so sorry. I have been extremely busy with my career and my job as a coach, but I am back for Shine Brighter with Liz. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the show. It's called Shine Brighter with Liz, and it's a podcast on personal growth and lifestyle development. And currently I am in season two and this is episode 30. I've been interviewing people who I find to be lighthouses, light sources in this world that are really just emanating their big, beautiful, positive light into the world and really chasing their dreams and sharing their journey along the way with people. So today's guest is a very, 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 very funny person. And it was an amazing episode. So yes, I have been slacking, but you guys are in for an amazing treat for episode 30. I cannot wait for you guys to hear today's episode. Today's guest is comedian, actor, and podcast host, Alexis Guerreros. Alexis survived growing up in Newark, New Jersey, and a single Cuban mother with a mean left hook. After being laid off from a horrible but well-paying corporate job, Alexis started comedy and never looked back. His wife has, though, many times, but he has not. Alexis performs nightly in New York City at clubs such as New York Comedy Club, Gotham, Stand Up New York, Caroline's, and many more. Alexis has performed on television, on Gotham Comedy Live, as well as festivals throughout the country from New York Comedy Festival, Laughing School, Red Clay Comedy Fest, and more. Alexis has appeared in many sketches and shows on Comedy Central and is the host of HQ Trivia. You can hear Alexis as a co-host of the wildly popular The Cooligans podcast, the funniest soccer podcast in the world. They also tour throughout the country doing live podcasts and hosting soccer events. Alexis was recently chosen as part of the ABC Diversity Showcase as one of 12 actors out of 16,000 applicants. Also, pizza. This guy knows way too much about pizza. Seriously, so don't ever ask him to get pizza with him because he will ruin it for you. If you're a foodie and you're in Catch Yourself in New York City, make sure you take his food tour, Fat Ventures Tour. So, without further ado, this is my episode with Alexis. All right, we are recording. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I'm super excited to have you on as a guest. Well, I'm happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, let's start from the beginning. What were you like as a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? And what has really been your journey from childhood to where you are now? I mean, it's a pretty loaded question, but uh, <laughs> what were you like as a kid? And tell me everything that happened that got you to be years in your 30s. Um, when, I, when I was a kid, I grew up in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, mm-hmm. We pronounce it Newark, N-O-R-K. Everyone else pronounces it Newark. That's how we know you're now from there, okay? That's how you get your wallet took. Uh, <laughs> And I grew up in Newark, <clears throat> uh, you know, single parent, but my house was filled because my grandfather, my grandmother, and my aunt uh, were there along with my sister and my mother. So, you know, I talk about growing up without a father a lot on stage as a comic, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that's a part of my life that I didn't realize was significant until I got older, and I'm like, oh, wait, other people have different experiences. But for me as a kid, it just felt like it was a bunch of people in a home. It, was, it wasn't until I started watching television that I realized, like, oh, I don't have, like, the typical family. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Um, and Latinos tend to kind of stick together sometimes, you know, families. So you'll see, like, my cousins who grew up in Chicago, 
it was a four family house. And, you know, Abuela and Abuelo were in the, ba- in the, in the first ground, in the ground level, so they didn't have to go down the stairs. You know, yeah. the younger kids were upstairs. And they, they all, like, the whole family had their own apartment, you know? So, like, for me, it always felt somewhat normal. Um, I always knew, I didn't know English until I was, like, eight or nine, because um, I could always understand it, but it was hard for me to, to communicate in it um, as a kid. And I always leaned on, you know, the television, my mother worked like five jobs, so television basically helped raise me. So right. I learned English from watching cartoons and like sitcom repeats at night and stuff like that. Like I would just watch like, you know, who's the boss and things <laughs> like that. And I kind of learned, oh, okay, this is how people in America talk, you know? Right. And I think that that's kind of what set me on the pace to be a comedian is because everything in a sitcom is, sitcoms are written specifically the same way uh, jokes are on stage. It's premise, set up, punchline, premise, set up, punchline. I didn't know that. So I think I started speaking in that pattern. Wow. Uh, and it just kind of led me to that. But I remember the moment I knew I wanted to be a comedian uh, when I, I was a kid. And, you know, Latinos do this all the time. They have parties that go really late and they send the kids to sleep at some point. <laughs> and I remember going, I remember going to sleep at like eight o'clock, but I could hear everyone laughing. But this is like a different laughter. It was like controlled. Like I remember, I can literally picture it as a child. I could see everything. I could see what's on my mother's mantle. I could see what's on my, you know, I could see what's in the hallway. I could see my sister leaving socks off that. Like I could see it all. And I could hear laughter at certain moments, but like the whole room would laugh together. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, are they watching a movie or something? Like, why are they all laughing at the same moment? It's not just like that jovial, you know, people having a party laughter. Right. And so I kind of snuck downstairs and my, the door to my kitchen was one of those that would swing both ways. So I pulled it back just a little bit, which is what I would do when, you know, the adults were arguing, you know, you just pull it back yeah. just a tiny bit and I could see through the crack and I could see my grandfather who basically raised me as my father. He was essentially like my father figure, if you will. I saw him standing in the front of the room, sort of leaning on the radiator and he was telling a story and he was the one who was kind of dictating when people were laughing, you know? Wow. Like, based on what he was saying was how people were reacting. And everyone was paying attention to him, you know? And in that moment, I, I just saw that as, like, that's the ultimate superpower. You know, in my head, I'm like, this guy's got complete control of a room of people. That's insane. And, you know, when you're a kid, adults, you have no idea what they're talking about. So to you, you're like, what, what is this nonsense, everyone? Everyone's having different conversations, you know? And this guy managed to sort of corral all of that. So in my head, I was like, I want to do that. And that was wow. it. That was the moment... That was the moment I knew. That was the moment I'm like, I'm going to figure out a way, whether it's stand-up or something else. And then later on in life, I was at a uh, Christmas holiday party uh, for my mom's company with her. Little kid, somebody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I went to say comedian because I used to say I want to be a comedian. And my mother was so embarrassed by it. She covered my mouth at calm. And I'm not making any of this up. She said pewter science. So she finished <laughs> the word for me. I swear on I swear on my life and everything I hold dear, I'm not making that up. And in that moment, I'm like, every, me and everyone in that room knew I was going to disappoint my mother. Wow. So, so I eventually just, you know, I was, I was always the fat kid, you know. Nobody wants to kill the fat kid. Nobody wants to shoot the fat kid. Nobody wants to have the fat kid in their gang, you know. So, like, I survived a bunch of stuff just from being the funny guy, you know. Like, I was friends with, and gangs that hated each other, I was friends with all of them, you know? 
And like, it was never a problem. Like if I was cool with like my friends and they had beef with somebody else, they'd be like, yo, Max, you got to get out of here. You know, blah, blah, blah. My pop off. Like, you know, everyone kind of like, I was sort of somewhat protected. Like, you know, when I got, I got arrested in a stolen car when I was a teenager and you know, normally everyone says like, yo, it was not mine. It's not mine. It's not mine. Like legitimately everyone in that car is like, Lex had nothing to do with this. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> like, thank you guys. Like, you know, thanks. Good luck everybody. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I was always that guy who they were like, Oh, he's funny. He's smart. He's going to get out of here. And that was kind of cool <clears throat> growing up, uh, sort of having that protection. And then I, I got into the corporate world because, you know, I just knew I wasn't going to make any money as a stand-up, and I needed to get out of Newark first and foremost. That was my first goal. Right. And then when I got laid off in 2008, I had a really long severance package that I had to go to, uh, negotiate it. So, you know, I had 18 months at 85% of my salary. My wife looked at me, and she's like, why don't you go do what you've always wanted to do? Someone's paying you to stay home. And when she met me, I worked seven days a week through high school and college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I had a full-time job in high school. Like, I would make... I would still make like my 30 plus hours, uh, even while going to high school, I would just do it after school. So I never really got to hang out and stuff, at least not as much as I'd like, you know, I would hang out much later with like older people because I would, they would going out after work, you know, I'd be like, all right, I'll go with you guys, you know? So for the most part, she knew like, all right, you've been working since you were a kid. Why don't you go do something for yourself while somebody's paying you? As long as we can keep the apartment, you know, as long as we don't lose the apartment, we're good. <clears throat> and that that was it. I started doing stand up and I never looked back. She has. She has many times, but I have not looked back. Right. Well that that's amazing. That's an amazing story. And I love that you have a supportive wife to be like, hey, you know, go push for your dreams. That's really awesome. Um Yeah, so- I mean there's been moments where, you know, she's been like, Are you sure you still want to do it? Like, you know, we'd love yeah. to be able to pay the bills. But right. <laughs> you know, for the most part, it's like that that hustle in me never goes away. There's moments where yeah you know, it waxes and wanes. And there's moments where as, as a good couple, we've been together for, since we were teenagers. So we've been together since for now, we just actually had our 13th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So like in that period of time, we've seen each other grow and that's really important for both of us. But there's moments where each of us has had to pull each other back a little bit and be like, Hey, you, you haven't been doing X, Y, Z, just not even like, you know, chores in the house, just like, for yourself or you have been focusing on what you want or, you know, you've been <clears throat> focusing too much attention on these other things. Like we sort of right. help each other reach our goals. Right. And I think that that's what a healthy relationship looks <clears throat> like. And I think that, that that's awesome. Not everybody finds that. So, and I know you guys are like best friends mm-hmm. and you told that, that joke one time about you having a cancer scare and her being like, you're my best friend. It was like, I remember hearing you say that, that, that joke. And I was like, wow, that was like a beautiful, joke but it still was so very real and you know on your social media you can tell that you guys are like best friends and stuff like that so that's great i'm so glad that you have thank you a healthy relationship yeah absolutely so i met you at the comedy club in new york um with my boyfriend robert and you were very 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 funny and then afterwards um i'm i'm an actress so i get the whole like let's go tell them you know they did so good and my boyfriend's more like let's run out the door and i'm like no like we had to tell them like people love that you know and, um, yeah, it, 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 I, I notice that sometimes, especially now that I, I'm doing more acting after the ABC showcase, when some of my friends who were on it or people I've met through acting will come to the comedy show, they make it a point to come out afterwards and tell you absolutely what they like. 
And I'm like, that's such an, because comedians don't expect that. They expect like, yo, dude, that joke you said was stupid. Yeah. You know, like, you know, <laughs> you expect just, or someone who's drunk and being like, can we be best friends? Like, you don't know what to expect. So when someone comes out and just has an actual just appreciation for your art, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. cool. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. And it's so funny because with my partner, he never really understood that. Like, if I watched a play, if I went to go see anything, like, I just, it's like our etiquette to like, you have to go tell like the performer, like, you know, you wait after to tell them, you know, even in Broadway, they have like, they still have those like stage doors. So when they come out, you know, they get, they still get yeah. that feedback, which is the great thing about being live. So obviously that's when I met you. And um, I didn't even know you had done ABC showcase. Weirdly enough, I had been, I had watched, I remember telling my boyfriend after I met you, I was like, this guy, it's so weird the way the universe works. I obviously was like, I really want to do ABC showcase. So everybody that had done it the year before, I had looked at their Instagram, like I had looked through their things and I had looked through your Instagram before I had met you. And that happens to me sometimes when I like I'm targeting people or just looking at things in the industry that happens and then I'll meet them. And it's like really weird. And that happened with you. Um, that's so strange. But um, so obviously, it's I like you know them, but you can't reveal how you yeah, know them. You know, because I was stalking you. Basically, like, yo, I swear to God, I know what you ate two weeks ago. You know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So obviously, um, you talked about, you know, getting into comedy and never looking back. But what is that like? What is what is it like writing a stand up? Like, what is it like to pull your life and put it into jokes? And what's that process like of just doing stand up? I mean, for me, I think the scariest part of doing stand up was the idea that like, you know, I mean, it sounds cocky and I don't mean it to sound mm -hmm. cocky, but it's the easiest way to say it. Like, I know I was the funniest amongst everyone I knew. You know what I mean? Of course. Like, <clears throat> if my friends and I were like joking on each other, there was a point where they were done and I could keep going. And you know, after a while, <clears throat> it just seems mean, you know? And I'm like, but well, why aren't you guys still being funny? Like, I got more to go, like, let's go. You know, like when, when people used to stamp on each other's moms, I would win that every time. Mm -hmm. And it would cause like arguments fights and they were like yo why don't you stop dude and i'm like i don't know i got more jokes like why don't you why aren't you guys continuing so i knew eventually that when i did get into stand-up and you know once i got in the corporate world i thought maybe it would never happen because i was getting a lot of money and i was like and ah, maybe i'll just own comedy clubs or something you know in the future yeah. like i wasn't sure but when i got into it i realized like all right this is where like I, Michael Che, I think put it the best. He said he thought it was going to be the class clown Olympics, you know, mm -hmm. like he was a class clown and everyone else was kind of quiet. So he thought, man, when I get into comedy, this is where all the class clowns can sort of be ourselves. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, there's a lot of that. But most of the people that I ran into, especially when I started, were people that were like very good writers and they would write and they're very quiet and very introverted and they get up on stage, they recite what they wrote and then they're done. I'm not that person. I'm much more like, you know, loud and, and I, I want to hang out and I want to talk mm -hmm. and I want to riff with you. You know, I don't, I can't sit down. Like, um, I started reading up on how other famous comedians would write because my biggest issue in my entire life has been able, I haven't really been able to sit down and write. Mm -hmm. I'm someone who sort of, you know, I come up with jokes based on communication, based on speaking to people, conversation. And then I'll remember funny things I said, and then I sort of construct them into jokes after that. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm put under pressure, I come up with great reactions to things, or at least reactions to things that I think are funny. So like, I'll say something to my wife, even if we're in an argument, this is absolutely true. If we're in an argument and we're like arguing with each other, we never yell, but if we're like upset with each other yeah. and I say something and I react, that's funny. She'll be like, <clears throat> write that down. Now, anyway, so like mm -hmm. I was saying, you know, you didn't do this, you know? So like, she's smart enough, like, 
we've been together long enough where she'd be like, write that down. Because she says <laughs> she'll know that's funny. Mid-fight. So even in the middle of an argument, she'd be like, that was funny. How could you say that? You know? <laughs> so she'll just repeat, she'll just say that, and I'll know to write it down. Like, that's how I come up with stuff. Jerry Seinfeld famously has a, an empty room in his apartment. Nothing on the walls, nothing. It just has a desk and a chair. One side of the desk drawers are filled with those yellow legal notepads, and the other side is filled with pencils. And that's wow. it. And he sits in there for three hours a day. That's what he does. And he writes jokes on those notepads. And he's gotten to the point now where he can fill out a notepad in those three hours just with jokes, right? Wow. Now, look, if you did that to me, <clears throat> if you put me in a room for three hours with notebooks and pencils, you'd have notebooks filled with pictures of dicks that I'd be drawing. <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't write. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be able to write jokes. Part of it would be like a weird diary entry. You know what I mean? Like, it wouldn't be jokes that I would write because I can't, I can't communicate. Like, to me, that's not my juice. So I have to go out and talk to people. So for me, doing podcasts like this or, you know, going to talk to people or just walking around, like, that's why I could never live a place like Los Angeles because I'd be stuck in a car. Like, I have to go talk to people. You know, my wife says it takes me 45 minutes to walk the block to the train because she's like, you think you're the mayor of this block because I talk to everybody. I'm like, who are you? What's up? What's this? Ugly shoes, you know? <laughs> Like, I need to be talking to people. So that's how I write my material. That's how I come up with my stuff. And my wife now knows if something happens, if she trips in front of me, it's going to be said on stage. Like, I do a joke about where I got, I got roofied. And so I'm, I'm putting together my, my album, which is uh, I'm going to record at the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. And I have these two longer stories. One of them you've already referenced, which is the one about the cancer scare. Right. And there's the other one about where I was roofied. And my wife, who's a nurse, sort of had to spring into action and really saved my life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, legitimately, legitimately saved my life. Like, I would have died that night if it wasn't for her. You were actually roofied? To, yeah, I was 100% roofied. Oh um, I was out of complete, completely out of control. Um, I, I had no control of my body. I mean, I was completely out. And thank God for her because she realized I wasn't being responsive to, you know, the typical things that nurses or, or doctors will do to you to see your responsive level. And she realized, oh, there's an opportunity. There's a chance he might stop breathing voluntarily, involuntarily. So I need to get into a hospital. Oh so God. she legitimately saved my life. But I tell that joke on stage because I woke up while I was pooping myself. You know? <laughs> and that's the reason I woke up. So that's the thing that happened <laughs> that woke me out of the story. And I didn't know where I was. All of a sudden I'm in a hospital. So I explain the story on stage and it takes about two and a half minutes which for a joke is very long. So I'm going to do that in the middle of my album. And I saw my wife in it. And I explained like seeing her all the way across the room. And I'm like, but if it's not her, then who is wiping me? You know? (laughs) And so like, you know, I expected it to be her, you know? And so I tell the whole story. And I remember the first time I told it, there was a large group of comedians in the back of the room and my wife was sitting amongst them. And I was telling the story and I, and you know, I could feel the room was captivated. You don't always want captivated in a comedy show. You want trust. The captivated means they've stopped laughing and they're really paying attention. Right. And you kind of want that laughter. You kind of want that looseness. Right. So I'm like, okay, I need to find, I'm adding way too much emotion to the story. I need right. to find a way to get out of this so that they laugh. Right. So I'm trying to figure that out as I'm telling the story. And I remember looking at my, uh, at my wife in the back of the room, I say the last line, it gets a huge pop. And I see the comedians in the back of the room aren't laughing because it's typical comedy. But then all of a sudden, they laugh. And mm. I, said, <clears throat> I said to my wife, I was like, what happened? 
she was like, yeah, of course, you know, comics are paying attention to the joke. They're not going along with it and laughing. You know, they're paying attention to the rhythm of it. And then one of them leans over and said, did that really happen? And mm-hmm. she responded like, yeah, just the scariest night of my, you know, of my effing life. And here he is making a joke out of it. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I guess you don't think of it that way when you're a comic. You think everything that happens to you is an opportunity for a joke. Yeah, I forget that my wife had to go through that too, you know? Right. Well, I think that's great because I, I was listening to Ali Wong's special, like the Baby Cobra, because I saw the one that she just came out with. And then I was like, let me go back and watch Baby Cobra. And she talks about she had this miscarriage and how it was like two twins. And like she has this whole joke. And then my cousins were watching it and their parents and they're like, oh, that's not funny. That's so sad. I'm like, you have to understand that's how she deals with her pain. Like she's dealing with her pain through comedy. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And my boyfriend, Robert, the one that told me, you know, we have to go to a comedy club. Like he's a comedy fanatic. Like the reason I know Jerry Seinfeld, the reason I know any of these like comics or appreciate comedy I mean, I always liked sitcoms and I, you know, obviously I've always, when I was a young girl, I would say, I want to be an actress. I want to do comedy. But my boyfriend really understands comedy and, and loves stand up, and, and he's just more technical about it. And he's like, oh, you have to know this comic. This is the best. This is the best comic of all time. Like watch them. And so um, he always talks about how, you know, anything can be funny. Like anything you say can be funny. Um, and so I just think that's interesting. Like watching some people, like I know that we live in a very sensitive time right now. And it was cool when we went to, um, the comedy club, they were like, oh, is anybody sensitive here? Like, you know, so I just, I, I appreciate comedy so much and, and how you can turn, you know, these real life situations into, into humor. And, and, and I think it also brings people together because it's like, you know, even in the darkness, we can make light of this. We can make light of, of cancer. We can make light of miscarriages. We can make light of these things because we're ultimately, we're all in this together. And the reason it's funny is because you relate, you, you relate to this. It's funny because yeah. it's true. And also, I mean, I don't think that there's any greater stage, uh, you know, than getting to the point where you can laugh about something that was painful. Um, you know, like, you know, it's an old saying, but one day you'll be laughing about this. Like, to me, that maybe comedians do it a little sooner than anyone else. Mm. But to me, there's nothing more obnoxious than someone telling me something I went through shouldn't be joked about. How right. do you know? You know, you weren't there. You, I went through it. I'm the one who woke up not knowing what happened to me, you know? So, right. uh, you know, or, or I'm the one who I thought had cancer. Like, you can't tell me I can't joke about an experience I had. There's nothing more selfish than you telling me I can't joke about something that what I went through. So for me personally, I think I get when sometimes somebody makes a joke that has nothing to do or nothing gets achieved in the joke. It's, you know, you use something that, you know, is, is a society, an ill of society as a punchline. And I don't care about the punching down and up. I don't care about that. If your joke is funny, I'm going to laugh at it. But there is times where I'll hear a joke that's like, you know what, nothing. I mean, you didn't need to say that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just said that. You know, it's like old school comedians would use the word blowjob as a punchline. It's like, that's not funny. You know, you can't just say that word and make fun. Or someone who yells, kill yourself at the end of the joke. You didn't make a joke. You just said that. You know what I mean? So I get get where that comes from. But now it's like, I, I remember I said a joke about, growing up without a father and I referenced 9-11 in the joke and mm. someone goes you can't joke about 9-11 I go listen to the joke I didn't it was just mentioned in the joke you know what I mean it was because of that time period I'm like yeah you have to actually listen to the actual joke if you're gonna get mad at me for something at least be right you know right and do you feel like have you had situations where people come up to you and and like those negative experiences where they're like oh I didn't like that joke or they kind of criticize your work have you had that situation like you just said about the 9-11 thing 
Yeah, there was a there was a joke about um, there was uh, two girls that from a building I lived in on the Upper West Side for a few years. Uh, they went missing, and someone in the building suggested that they had been, uh, you know, kidnapped for human trafficking. You know, like out of nowhere. And the joke was like, "Jesus, lady, you jumped to that." Turns out they went to a, a vacation home, you know, or something without, or they went on, on vacation with friends and didn't tell their parents. So the parents had called the building. They were college students. And I, my wife was like, what if I get kidnapped? And I'm like, babe, just turn around and yell, I'm 33, you know, because they were college students. That was the reference, right? And uh, she was like, because the lady said, oh, yeah, a lot of college students are getting kidnapped, and, which wasn't true. Some lady came up to me after the show and said, rape isn't funny. And I was like, yeah, I agree with you. Thank you for sharing that information. What a weird way to say hello, you know? Right. And she was, she was like, no, you joked about rape. You said your life is too old to be raped. And I was like, whoa, you know? And I legitimately went through the joke with her. I was like, what are you talking right. about? I'm like, let's go through the joke because I don't want you leaving here thinking, because I don't do jokes about that specifically because mm -hmm. I don't find that funny. Right. So, like, I don't want you leaving here thinking I'm that type of comic. So I went through the joke with her and she was very standoffish. She thought I was trying to sort of mansplain it. I'm like, wait, I'm author explaining it. I wrote the joke. I perform it. I'm telling you what the joke is about. Now, typically comedians, won't do that. If we make a joke that has some type of subtlety to it, it's up to you to sort of figure it out. But I certainly didn't want this person leaving thinking, hey, there's this shock comic named Alexis, you know, just being rude about his wife's age, you know, or about, you know, rape as an issue in the society. Oh, I just don't do that. So yeah. I went over with her and whatever, we shook hands. And at the end, we agreed to disagree. And I think, you know, I was like, it's a little presumptuous of you to assume that you know my joke better than me, but you do you, you know? Yeah. All so of a sudden, she posted. So she, she posted on Facebook and tagged me in it, oh my and a bunch of people were like, "We should kidnap his wife because she's clearly unhappy in this marriage." Oh my and it was, somebody god! Somebody was like, "Somebody put we should we should cut his." Uh, I don't know if I could curse on this. I think yeah, I have already. So I apologize. <laughs> All right, cool. Some lady was like, "We should cut his dick off and turn it into a candle." I don't even know where that came from. You know what I mean? I'm like, first of all, that's clearly a fetish, lady. Like that has nothing to do with happening here. Yeah, it's just something you're into. You're waiting for someone to agree. You post this on every comment, <laughs> hoping someone agrees. Like, no matter what happens, like, hey, this guy's putting out a new sandwich. We're like, we should cut his dick off and turn it into a candle. You know, and you just want to do that. But, like, I messaged the lady. and like, don't you see what's happening in your comment section is worse than anything I said on stage, even if you believe it is about that topic? And she apologized and deleted the comment. I mean, but this is, like, the insanity of, like, people are get so upset that they're more violent in the upset part than they were about whatever the joke is. And at the end of the day, it's a joke. If you don't like it, guess what happens? You go on with the rest of your day. Right. People in that room laughed. Some people didn't. Some people found it funny. Some people didn't. Go on with your day. A joke isn't going to change the world, you know? It's not going to certainly ruin it. Not, no politician is going to hear that joke and go, you know what? We should make rape legal after the age of 30. You get what I'm saying? Like, that's yeah. not going to happen. So just and go on with your day. It's a bit. Yeah. And your job is to be funny. Like, I think we, my boyfriend and I were talking about Tom Segura and like how he did this whole thing about, uh, you know, I think it was like Illinois or Arizona or something like that. And he was saying how like those people are like the worst thing ever or whatever. And people got very sensitive about it. And um, I just, and then he said, he's like, he's like, my job is, is to make fun of things. Like, that's my job. Like, you can't get mad that I'm making fun of something when my job is to make fun of things. Like I'm literally, that's literally my job. And so I just, I think that's crazy. And I, I had like, I, you know, I haven't, I've never done stand up or anything like that, but I did do a one woman show um, for my senior thesis um, in theater. And I kind of, it was kind of sitcom-y. It had like elements of like 
Lucille Ball, like very like she's very neurotic. And so her neuroses is really funny. Um, and so she has like a panic attack on stage and she's very um, just she's having an anxiety attack throughout the whole thing. And she's at a therapist's office and she's talking with the audience. But ultimately, what you realize is that I'm kind of displaying my life on stage. And I actually am talking about my neuroses and, and my anxieties about, you know, also not having my dad in my life. Um, you know, like who's going to give me away at my wedding? And, you know, I'm thinking my husband's cheating. My, my, my fiance's cheating on me, but he's not cheating on me. I just have trust issues and all of these things. And about like my childhood of being, you know, with a stepdad that was, um, gave all his love to this little girl, which was my sister and having to live through that and what that was like seeing another man give love to a little girl when I myself was a little girl. And I did this whole thing right. and I cry and like, she just like, she never gets to go inside the therapist's office because she got there late. And so she ends up confessing everything with the audience before she even gets to go into the therapist's office. And when it's finally time for her to go inside, she's already worked through all her problems on stage. And so, um, Sounds like a great yeah. idea, by the way. It, it was it was a great, great, great one woman show. It was it was amazing. It was the most artistically fulfilling thing ever. When I'm done, one of my family members came up to me and was like, you know, I don't think you should talk about that. Like, I don't think you should talk about your stepdad like that. Like that, you know, Super that's not, Cuban, not putting, by the way. Yeah, like that's not putting him in a good light. And I'm like, first off, like, and I was so taken back by it because I was like I never spoke anything bad because believe me there's so much bad I could have talked about that I didn't I simply mentioned the fact of what it was like for me to go through that as a little girl and you know why my neuroses just came up and 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 what my experience was like as a little girl I'm just taking the audience on a story of my life and you know that's my truth and I, I just found it so interesting how no matter what you can't please everybody and it's your story at the you end can't. of the day it's your story you, you gotta you gotta share yeah, and I, you know what, every once in a while, like, uh, comedians will get furious when someone, like, writes a blog post or something about, like, this person is a, and, you know, sometimes those comics, like, you know, I, I know some comedians who I love dearly as people, but they've got their own issues, mm-hmm. and, you know, sometimes they go on stage, and those issues are revealed, and, you know, they attack other people, and I get it, like, I totally get it, there's sometimes where I'm like, yeah, dude, you're being an asshole, like, it's not, right. it's not even about the joke anymore, you're being an asshole, but, like, there's times where like someone will be like, I can't believe you joked about that. And you know, Oh, you shouldn't do that. That bothers me. It's like, I don't want to tell you, like if, if it bothers you, then maybe you don't go to comic clubs. Like, you know, if I don't like gluten, I'm not going to go to a bakery. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why, why are you upset about other people enjoying something? And I get it. Like, I'm not talking about like, it's not a Nazi rally. You know what I mean? It's not a, <laughs> it's not something yeah. else. It's people joking about experiences they've been through. And I remember I have a friend who, went through something very traumatic and somebody joked about it. And there was all this conversation going back and forth about like, should this be joked about? And she, for the first time in her life, opened up about what happened to her and said, there's nothing more freeing than for me to laugh about it and to hear jokes about it because it reminds me I'm not alone. It's like this idea of not talking about stuff, that's not going to help. So I'm not saying everyone go out there and, you know, tell whatever it is, rape joke or child abuse jokes or whatever it is. I'm not saying that, but like if something happened to you, like what happened to you in your experience, how insulting is it for someone to tell you that you can't validate your, your own experiences are validated or is it enough because someone else might get offended? What are you talking about? You went through it. You're allowed to deal with it yeah. any way you want. Whether that means you could go get a tattoo on your back that says, you know, no dad crew. I think I have the same one, you know, or whatever it is. You can <laughs> no go do whatever crew. you want. Yeah. As long as you're not hurting somebody else physically, you know what I mean? Who cares? Go do whatever. You, 
If you got up on stage, somebody bought a ticket to go see your play and was like, yo, I don't like what you said. Who cares? You know? Good. I'm glad you at least had some reaction. Exactly. And it's my, and that's what I loved about the one woman show was that it's my time to talk. Like maybe in life, I haven't had the chance to say my story. Like you don't have a choice, but to sit there for 30 minutes and listen to me talk. And it's going to be entertaining. Right. It's going to be funny. I'm going to take you through the journey. And that's the artistry of that storytelling, which obviously comedy is that too. So, um, so yeah, I think that's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. So let's talk about this, um, ABC showcase. Um, I know that yeah. you got into ABC showcase. What was that experience like? So you're a comedian um, and you said, you know, you're dabbling more into acting. So what was that like? When did you apply to ABC showcase? What was that? What was that whole journey? So I auditioned for uh, a role on a show on ABC. I've been auditioning for a while. I've been in commercials and stuff. I wouldn't call myself an actor primarily. Um, to me, I'm a comedian um, who acts sometimes. That's how I always viewed it. Uh, and I understand that when you're a comedian, you will get opportunities to have your own show if you're you know, good enough. Or you know, people will want to sort of have you on a sitcom. So I knew acting was always going to be a part of it, right? Okay. So I auditioned for a show on ABC, and I get called in for another show pretty quickly after. And I do this with every script I ever get. I kind of Google it just to see if like, I can get more information about the director, things like that. And this one script I Googled, and I saw a clip of it. It was already on air. And I'm mm -hmm. like, or it was already cast. And I was like, hmm. So I messaged my manager, and I said, is this being recast? And she was like, no, I don't think so. But just go in there and do your best. So I went in. I did it. Everyone in ABC was like, thank you. I get asked to do another audition the following week. I Google that, same thing, already on air. So now I'm auditioning for a second thing that I know I'm not going to get. I'm starting to get a little annoyed. I go in there, audition for that. Um, they say, thank you, no callback, no nothing. And I'm, of course not, it's already on air. And then I get asked to do something called the showcase, a uh, comedy uh, showcase kind of thing. I forget what it's called. Oh, comedy workshop. So it was myself and a bunch of other comedians sort of reading, uh, you know, doing scenes. Um, none of us really knew what it was for. But we went in and, you know, my manager was like, just be as funny as possible. That's all you have to do is just be as funny as possible. I went in, I did the scene, everyone laughed. They asked us to sort of reach, to change the scene a few times and do it different ways, like you would any other showcase audition kind of thing, a workshop. I did it. We were there for a couple hours and then um, the head of casting told us this was the first step and potentially many other steps. And she explained what the showcase was. So I did that and then I think it was another four more auditions. And that was it. There was no more comedy. It was like acting with other actors. And to me, I'm like, well, I know my only talent or my biggest talent in acting would be making a scene funny. So I would look at every scene and I'd say, all right, well, there's what I think is the punchline. So I'll just mm. go to that, you know, and wow. I would land the punchline as hard as I possibly could. And next thing you know, I get the showcase and it was five days a week in, you know, intense uh, figuring out who your partner's going to be for your scene, figuring out what scene you're going to do that's good for you and your partner that highlights both of you. So we were reading just like scene after scene after scene. And, you know, it was all like cold reads, which for people listening who don't know what a cold read is, is where you haven't been given a script for a long period of time. So you're basically acting while kind of reading it off the page and trying to memorize it and, you know, add some type of, you know, character to it. It was a lot. So right. I basically couldn't work anywhere. I stopped doing as many shows because, you know, you're, you're working intensely for six hours a day inside this thing. And it's something that everyone else there were people who went to like Juilliard and NYU, you know what I mean? Like these yeah. are people who can sing and dance. 
they're all doing their little warm-ups, the me, 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 you know, all that stuff. And I'm in the corner drinking a coffee, reading, you know, Twitter. Like, I was okay. totally different than everyone else. Like, I was, a, I'm a comedian. Like, I knew, I knew I was different than everyone else when we got to the theater and everyone else kind of freaked out, except for one girl. Um, she's, she's on Broadway. She's a, mm-hmm. an understudy for a pretty big Broadway show. And she was comfortable with being on stage. Everyone else was silently freaking out. Mm-hmm. And I'm a comedian. I'm on stage seven nights a week. So I was like, yo, get people in here right now. Let's do this thing. <laughs> and I was excited and everyone else was freaking out. And that's when I think sort of the temperature of the room changed where I was always the odd man out. And I think people were like, you know, somebody made a joke about an MFA. And I said, yo, what's an MFA? And everyone kind of laughed. And I didn't know that was a master's in fine arts. I didn't right. know that. Dude, I went to business school. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm a comedian. Like, I'm not an actor. So I think people kind of, I wouldn't say disrespected me, but I don't think they were expecting me to really um, shine, you know? And then mm-hmm. once we hit the stage, everyone was like, uh-oh, you know, he seems prepared now, you know? And for me, it was cool. I got a standing ovation. Uh, mm-hmm. my, um, my scene was the only one that got that. And I pulled the other actor aside. And was like, yo, you're, he's an incredible actor, incredible. Like, yo, would make me want to cry sometimes. But I'd be like, you don't know how to be funny. Like, you're a funny person, but when you get on stage, you try to act funny. That's Mm. not funny. you got to be funny. So, like, I showed him. I pulled him off to the side, and I was like, here's what you're doing in this moment. I never told him what to do. I was just saying, here's why you're not getting a laugh at this point, because you're doing that. That's awesome. And he was like, like, whoa. And then he would pull me aside and go, you know, you're kind of revealing this and this. So he kind of helped me and I helped him and it was amazing. And our scene went, I think the best out of everyone. Um, it got a standing ovation, it was the only one. And I remember walking out into that room, for people who don't know, the entire theater is filled with industry people, agents, managers, casting directors, everything, other networks. And when I walked out, I was like bum rushed by people. And my, my scene partner was bum rushed by agents and managers. And I signed with a really great agency now. And that, I mean, if, if that's all I got out of it was that and the confidence of some of the folks in Los Angeles, uh, it was, I mean, it was worth it. I auditioned for some great roles. I didn't get many of them, obviously like in acting, but I auditioned for stuff I would have never been called for a year ago. So right. like for me, I think it was great. It was intense, but it was awesome. That's awesome. That's an awesome story. And I love that you said about the whole, like you're acting, you're trying to act funny, you're not being. And I think that that's probably one of the notes I get often and I think it's probably because in school we're so sometimes so technical, like everything is so technical that you just, you try to be technical. I mean, I know how to let things go when I'm in the moment. I think it's easier for me if I'm like actually in a play or something right where, where, you know, I, I can be more physical and I can be more like in the moment. Sometimes I feel like scenes can be a little hard or like a workshop because I'm really under pressure and my partner is not really like acting with me. Sometimes it's like a reader. It's like very mechanical. So I just feel yeah. like, I mean, what is your advice to being like more being versus like acting? I don't know. I don't really, you know, understand how to explain it because I don't, I don't think I fully understand how, like, you know, how to just be in the moment. And mm-hmm. a lot of actors will say that. Um, all I can say is when I go into a scene and I remember the audition that I'm pretty sure got me the showcase um there i was doing two scenes the first scene there was a kissing part in it and the lady the girl that i was uh, working with was super nervous about having to kiss somebody i was like yo just don't kiss me let's just do the scene you know what i mean like i don't care just go home just go through it as if we don't make it a hug i don't care 
Like I'm not, you know, I mean, that's not why I got into this, you know? Right. So she was super nervous about that. And I don't think she was able to focus on the scene. And we did it. We did it as a hug. And she was, it was terrible. She just didn't know what to do. And she was like kind of missing her lines and was super nervous. And then after that, we kind of shook hands. And then I had another scene and it was with another girl. And, um, and this woman had to pretend to be a man in the scene. So she was like, oh, we're, it's two guys talking. And I'm like, you can pick whichever character you want. I don't care. And she picked the one that's a bit more bro-y. And I remember her, like, she really came in, like, trying to be a dude or whatever. And I'm making fun of her. And I remember, like, all right, if she's going to do that, it's going to throw off the scene a bit. You know what I mean? Because she was being, like, real big. So I was like, I got to go even bigger to land these lines because I don't have the funny one, you know? And I've got to find a way to make this funny. So there's a moment where, like, I'm supposed to be pretending to be his girl. And I'm like, please don't leave me. And I'm, like, doing that whole thing. I drop down to my knees. I hug her, you know what I mean? Like, I grab onto her shirt. I'm like, please don't leave. You know, and I'm making it big. And I remember hearing the people behind me laugh. And I think for me, the moment is always, when I'm talking to someone and, I, and you know, we're all being funny and I want to be even funnier, I just think to myself, like, what, what, how does this, how do I heighten this? How do I make this moment funnier? And I think no matter who you're, who I'm reading with or talking to or acting in a scene, you know, like when Zeus, my scene partner, when he, he like pretends to get slapped in one of the, he gets slapped in one of the scenes and he does it big. I was like, you know, it would be funny if I wouldn't even figure it the other way. And it would double up on the laughter, you know? It's not about showing up, showing up to the other person. It's like, how do I heighten what we just did? If we're in a scene together, we're both a part of the last. So I just did that. And I remember seeing the face of, of Marcy and some of the other folks behind the camera. And they were like, yeah, this guy can make even the dumbest line funny. And to me, I'm like, all right, I know that's the moment I got the showcase. Like, once I got it, I thought back to that moment. I was like, I showed them I could even make the, the unfunny character funny. You know what I mean? Smart. I really love that. So I feel me, like it's think, a lesson in, learn- in acting. Yeah, I don't, I always think to myself, like, I know other, the other actor, if they're a really good actor, like if I was working with you, clearly mm-hmm. a trained actor, clearly know what you're doing. I don't. So I'm always like, all right, I'm behind the ball. I got to do something, mm-hmm. right? I know you're, you're going through all the things you've learned and all the things that makes you great, all the things you do before you get on stage or before you say a line. I don't have those things. So for me, I'm thinking, how would I react if this was me? And I just do everything that way. And then, you know, if the character's a bit meaner, like how would I react if this was me and I was angry? I would, if, the, if the character is maybe uh, a little bit more effeminate, all right, how would I act if this was me and, you know, I was... Uh, you know, I don't know, in a, in a very sensitive moment, like after sex or something, you know what I mean? Like what, what are those, what are those moments like where you're a bit more cuddly? I try to do those things. Like how do I, how would I react if this was me here? Cause I don't have those things where I'm like, I don't Meisner or whatever it is where I make myself right. a character. So I think being funny is that it's just like, how would I react if this were me? And I'd like to normally be funny, but like, I wanted to show a big reaction here. Like I wouldn't be like, boing-oing. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't fall. To me, physical humor isn't that funny. To right. me, it was like, I'd react like, as they're saying something, I would start to react knowing how I know I'm going to respond or to build to it. Like, you know, like a moment where somebody says something that surprises you, I'd react to that. So that when I say something, it lands even harder because I've already foreshadowed a little bit. Those types of things, I think, are the one thing that a lot of actors don't do because they're always in the scene hmm. and they're not thinking about like, I need to get to this. You know what I mean? They're not thinking about that punchline, whereas like you as a comic, think about that. Think about... I only think in punchlines. Mm-hmm. Like to me, I don't care if the scene is, if the punchline is too 
pages later, but the scene starts with making a sandwich. The way I'm making the sandwich, can you tell I'm hungry? I've mentioned sandwich. Before, <laughs> uh, the, way I, the way I start making the sandwich is in a way that I think will land that punchline better. Like if the punchline wow. is, you know, whatever. If it's an angry one, I'm adding a lot of like, I'm, I'm starting to add stuff in an angry way or in a way that would assume maybe I'm really happy so the, the anger lands even harder. Everything I do is to get to that punchline, which is, you know, like in the comics, sometimes you tell a 35, 45 second joke, which for people who've never been on stage alone, that's a lot of time. It's a lot. It's a day and a half. You get to that punchline and nobody laughs. You've just, I mean, you put so much effort into that and you put, you've waited it so much or some people do full act outs. Like, you know, all of a sudden on the floor pretending to be a, you know, a cat. And nothing, and it doesn't land. You just got to get up now, you know? Yeah. It's the silence. It's embarrassing. So I know, like, I know what I'm doing may hurt, but I have to do it. I have to have full belief that it's going to work on the end. Same thing. Same advice I have for a marriage. Same advice I have for a joke. Same advice I have for acting. Just go all the way in and hope at the end people are clapping, you know? (laughs) I love that so much. Okay, so let's, I I love all of that. Thank you for really diving deep into that because now I have a lesson in comedy, now I have a lesson in acting. So I want to ask you about this. Um, You're a huge foodie. You share about it on social media. You always look like you're having the best time eating. What is, and you have your, your, well, I just followed it. It's the tours for food. I think it was called. Yeah, Fadventure. Fadventure, yeah. So, okay, talk to me about, about food what what is what is your when did your passion for food come along and um what are some of the best places in new york that i have to eat at or just in general i think there's so i mean it's impossible to say what are some of the best because new york has fifteen thousand restaurants you know 2400 of them are pizza places Mm. and that number kind of changes because you know places close and new places open so i think you know when i for me growing up in the house and i think this is very similar for you you grow up in a house that's very Latin, you eat a very specific type of cuisine, and then your friends at school might be different. Or, you know, for me, I grew up in, in the North Ward of Newark, which has like a lot of Jamaicans and Trinidadians and Guyanese and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and, and just, you know, African-Americans and then there's Brazilians and Portuguese and the Ironbound. So like all my friends were a mixture of that. So when I would eat a dish, my friend would be like, oh, we have something similar to that, but it's called blank. And then you start to understand like, Oh, okay. Jamaicans eat something very similar to rice and beans, but it's different. You know, Trinidadians have something exactly like Guyanese, but it's different. You kind of just understand the world a little different. And you kind of, you know, for me, it was always like, what are the differences in the flavors? And why is Portuguese and Brazilian food so different, even though they're the same language? Right. Things like that. And like, I, why do I like my penis better than the Puerto Rican penis? Because everyone knows Puerto Rican penis is trash. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, like Cubans are the best at everything. So, like when I, when I eat food as a kid, I kind of learned a little bit about the world. And I was always interested, like I grew up on an intersection where all four corners were pizza shops. And I would always ask questions like, why is your pizza crispier than theirs? Or why is theirs sweeter than yours? And, and you know, eventually they're like, all right, this kid's not going to go away. People will answer your questions. I got a job at a restaurant when I was uh, 11 years old because mm-hmm. uh, my buddy's father owned it. And I learned a lot about food there. And simple things like, don't do this, you do this. You don't do that, you do this. Just those little things of just hearing them and having them explain it to me. The first time I ate steak, medium rare, instead of well done, because every kid loves well done. And the guy was like, I'm not giving you steak well done. I'm not going to ruin a steak. You're going to eat it medium rare. You're going to learn to like it. And immediately I fell in love with steak. So just putting all those things together, 
I didn't realize I knew a lot about food until I started talking to other people. Um, specifically when it comes to pizza, I know a lot about pizza. Like I can eat a slice okay. and tell you the oven it was baked in, the, the temperature the oven was at, the fuel the oven uses. Wow. I can tell you the hydration of the dough. I can tell you the type of flour that's in the dough. I can analyze the pizza just from looking at it and biting it, doing all these things. But I, I only know that because I've been around food my whole life without really knowing I was gaining all of that sort of knowledge. And to, to me, like when you go to what, when I moved to New York, like almost 20 years ago now, when I moved to New York, like, you get a chance to eat different food every meal if you want. A different nationality, different cuisine, maybe the same, but different styles. I mean, it's insane. So over a while, I've amassed this sort of list on Google Maps and in my head of places to eat and what the dishes are. And a lot of my friends are chefs and restaurateurs, and they'll tell me, oh, you got to go here and try this. And to mm -hmm. me, I always want to relay that information to other people. Comedians that are coming into town from Los Angeles or you know other parts of the world are like, Everyone's like, oh, ask Alexis where to eat. So right. I'm like, all right, myself and this other comedian, Mike Albanese, we realized, like, we have this knowledge. Why don't we just start? We did it as a, a Facebook live show where we would go eat and people would get to watch us eat and ask us questions. So and it was great. We did, I think, like 12 episodes and then uh, Food, Net Food Network, which was at the time owned by a company called Scripps. Scripps sold it to Discovery. But when it was owned by Scripps, they bought the show and turned it into two pilots that did not go. They, they didn't get greenlit, which sucks, but whatever. We got paid for the pilots, you know? Right. And then they own the name, they own the name Fat Venture uh, till the end of the year. So we were kind of waiting to see what they would do with it. They promised that they would try to re-sort re of uh, structure it, but then they got sold uh, to Discovery, and uh, the new executives, I guess, just scrapped all of the, all the stuff that was uh, on, the, on the dock, just waiting, and we were one of them. Um, so we just had to wait for the contract to run out. And once it ran out, we decided to make it a live tour. So we take people oh. to, I mean, it's, it's called fat venture. Like, cause it's for real. Like we took some other food tours just as like research. I mean, pretty dope research, if you don't mind me saying so, uh -huh. but you know, you get yeah, two people split one falafel ball. What are we doing? You know, like, <laughs> I was like, yo, if we're going to call it Fat Venture, you're getting an entire taco. You're right. getting half of a burger. You know, oh none of this cut a burger into six. You know, what are exactly. we, is, is this recess? You know, <laughs> get out of here, right? Like, and you know, nobody, like we always say, like, don't trust the skinny tour guide, food tour guide, at least. Right. You know, you, you're talking to two big guys. I, I mean, I lost 56 pounds. So Good people are like, you're not that fat anymore. Thank you. I'm like, still fat though. You know, <laughs> like all I do is, all I do is fit better into a double XL. That's all that happened. I don't know how <laughs> you lose 50 pounds and you still fit the same size. It's ridiculous. Uh, but <laughs> I honestly thought I'd have abs by now. But um, so like both, he's a huge guy. He's like six foot something, big guy. He was a linebacker for a while. So like these two big guys and we're just, we're, we're bringing you to restaurants that are, a lot of them are minority owned, women owned businesses, mom and pops. These are the places that don't get listed by, you know, all those stupid lists on the internet. They don't right. get listed by Zagat. They're not the ones that you could Google. Your concierge doesn't tell you to go there because they're getting paid to send you certain places. Mm. We're bringing you to the places real New Yorkers eat. These are places that I wish other New Yorkers knew about. And there's a lot of locals that take our tour. One of them lived around the corner from one of the restaurants and was like, I had no idea that wow. this was that. I thought this place was a record store. And I was like, yeah, I'm wow. terrible on it. You know, but they don't have a lot of money for marketing. So you I want to take that game. tour. It's dope. It's a lot of fun. You eat great food. One of the stops we go to is a fourth generation owner of a pasta shop. 
She's mm. like 26 years old. Her grandmother just passed away and right, she's yeah. taking over the business now. It's been there since 1906 and she's the one who wants to run it now. 26 years old has given up her entire life, you know, wow. that she chose otherwise because be like, no, I want to keep this thing alive. And, you know, these are places that would have been gone by now if it wasn't for people like her and her father who were like, we're not going to let this die out. That's the kinds of places that I want to take people to, especially because they're good at what they do, you know? Absolutely. I love that so much. I, and I feel like I'm not a picky eater, but anyone that knows me will say I'm a picky eater. Um, but I, I just... Yeah, picky I, eaters never know they're picky eaters. <laughs> they, they, like, they, you don't realize you're the most annoying people to go eat with. <laughs> I know. Everybody actually really, like, they get mad at me because um, I, I, my, anytime I go out to eat a dish, I edit things. So I'll be like, oh, but can we not have tomatoes? Can we not have onion? I don't really like uh, this. And so my boyfriend hates it. And like, he just took, we were in Chicago. We're supposed to be there for the whole month, but I came down for an audition and I've been here since. Um, but you know, there's a lot of Michelin stars over there and a lot of like amazing restaurants. We tried deep dish and things like that. And there was this one restaurant that is, um, ramen based. And my, my brother saw my, my boyfriend posted me eating the ramen. He's like, Oh my God, thank God. Like you're getting her to expand her palate. And I was like, what's the seaweed thing? I don't like it. Like I'm trying tofu. Like I do know that I need to expand my palate more. And for some time I went vegan and it was, it was great. It was like very healthy, but now I'm starting to slowly incorporate just like, like, you know, I eat healthy, but also I want to, I want to enjoy food. Like I, I think food should be enjoyed and I want to try different things. And, you know, I remember trying oysters for the first time. And I think I just like have a phobia of like fish and like anything, seafood, like, I don't know where the pig is common. From. I think I when you're a kid, you know, fish and seafood doesn't smell appetizing, you know? So I get it. But kids, pal- your palate changes when you get to yeah. your, you know, late teenage years. Here's the only thing I'll ever tell you. If you're at a good restaurant, the things inside that dish are not there to make it colorful or wild or crazy. The flavors were chosen specifically to balance themselves out. So like when you go to a restaurant, you're like, can I get this but without this? What you're telling them is you, chef, who studied this for years and understand how palates work, that's not important because I don't like this one thing. Try it with it. You know, if it's something you're allergic to, get rid of it. I get it. Right. But like for the longest time, I didn't like mushrooms. And I remember I was like 22 years old and I said to someone, can I get that but without mushrooms? And the chef was, and the chef who I knew was like, why? Just order something else. The mushrooms are there for a reason. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, let me get that car without a steering wheel. You're going to have a tough time driving it. You know what I mean? Right. So they're, they're, even in ramen, all of those flavors or, you know, ramen takes like years. You have to become an apprentice to learn how to make ramen. Really? Like the seaweed that's in there. Yeah. I, I have a friend who literally had two days. He's a chef in Queens. They gave him two days to fly to Japan to become an apprentice to learn how to make ramen in Japan. It's going to take him 18 months of intensive ramen making before he's even considered as the first level of ramen making. It's like, it's insane. So that piece of seaweed or the tripe that's in there, that's not because they, didn't, they couldn't afford other cuts and stuff like that. They're chosen for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, no, you're experience so right. it. You're so right. And I, Even if you don't like I really it, give like it a chance. A I like that a lot. And I really appreciate you saying that to me because it's, it's, it opens up my mind. And I think it is like you yourself put limitations on yourself. Like, oh, I don't like, like I always say, I hate onions, but I love anything like French onion smell, like anything that's like, that tastes, I hate mushrooms, but I love truffle, like obsessed with truffle, but you hate mushrooms. And like, I yeah. didn't like seafood, but like the other day, my friend was like, just try the calamari. It's fried. I'm like, I don't like it. And I tried it. I was like, that's good. So I think it's just like, yeah, like you don't like it. I like olive oil, 
I like olive oil. I don't like olives. Here's why I don't like mm. olives. It's too briny, right? Mm. Brine, the, the acid and the salt just washes away too much of my palate and it stays on there. So it's hard, like, it's hard for me to get that flavor off. That's the only reason I don't like it. I've eaten olives that, don't, that aren't he- heavily brined. They're amazing, right? But I love olive oil. And people sometimes would be mm. like, oh, there's tapenade. There's tapenade on this. There, it better not just be tapenade on toast. That I can't eat. But I've had people that put tapenade on like a steak sandwich or something or on a sandwich that's very fatty, like uh, pork jowl, like guanciale, things like that. And you need that tapenade to wash some of that fat off your, your tongue. So I understand the balance. I'll eat that. But to your point, if someone just hands you a whole piece of fish that mm. doesn't have a lot of seasoning or anything, you might not love it, you know. But if somebody hands you something that has like calamari in it or mussels or something, and it's a part of that balance of that dish, you should try it at least if you like that dish because it was put there specifically for your taste buds. That's all I'm saying. My whole thing is, well, what do you know? You know, people like, can I get ranch with this pizza? No, you can't. You know, we don't do ranch here. They put ranch on bad pizza. That's why you're used to it. You're used to eating bad pizza. I remember this lady was like, what do you dip your pizza into? Your mouth. (laughs) Wait, say it again. I said, what do you dip your pizza into? Then I'm like, your mouth. Just eat it, you know, (laughs) good enough. And I know in Chicago, it's like, um, you can't ha- you can't put ketchup on their hot dogs. Like they say, like don't do that. No, if you if you're putting ketchup on your hot dogs in Chicago, they're like you're not a local. Like you only put mustard. New York as like- well. Really? New York, yeah. New York is sauerkraut or mustard. That's all you get. Wow, that's insane. maybe maybe chili and cheese if you're in Coney Island. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you're eating a Midwest hot dog. You're eating a you know you're from Wisconsin. <laughs> you put ketchup on a hot dog. Man, I'm so badly cultured. I'm too American, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for 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 opening up my my mind that, to expand my palate. I'm definitely gonna start trying out more things like that. So, okay, obviously you do a lot. You you do you do a lot. So you have you know your 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 soccer podcast. It's a soccer podcast, right? It's a comedy podcast about soccer. We oh, tour okay. a bunch. Like I'm gonna be gone every weekend of July, and all of those dates. Typically, those would be like headlining comedy clubs. All of those dates are, are events for soccer. Those are all shows that we're hosting. We're doing a show at the stadium that DC United plays in at Audi Field, oh. uh, July 13th. Yeah, it's huge. Like, we're getting to perform in soccer stadiums. Like, this is, it's massive. The podcast is completely taken off, and I love everything. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. So, the, yeah, the reason I bring it up is because, like, so, you, you, you know, you have your podcast, you have your food tours, you know, you, you do comedy, um, you're in a very healthy relationship. So, how do you find the balance for all of those things? Like what are some of your, your healthy habits or just habits in your life that you feel like if other people really incorporated that they'll, they'll see success in their life as well. You know, I mean, I don't even know how to answer it because you know, healthy balance. I also host HQ. I mean, there's a bunch that I'm doing, but like, this is the life I asked for, you know what I mean? So like, I want this, the busier I am, the, 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 the more successful I feel. So when my calendar is empty, I get sad. Mm. Um, so I'll say, like, for me, this is what I want. The tough part is the fact that you don't realize how much it affects everyone around you. You know, I was gone for a month and a half last year on a tour. You know, when you got home, that's my wife had to be alone for a month and a half. Like, right. I'm thinking about, like, all the fun I had in all these different cities and traveling between. And here she is, you know, home alone. Right. And that's sort of, it's a little messed up. So like I've had to learn the more successful I become. And the, the toughest part about comedy is the more successful you become, the less you're home to a certain point. And then all of a sudden you're only doing theaters and you're home a lot. And most of your significant others are like, please get out. So I think one of the healthiest things that I think for me is to communicate whoever it is that you're with. If you're alone, then 
you know, communicate with your family as much as possible. Try to ground yourself as much as possible. Try to remember what it's like to be home. Like for me personally, sometimes I like to lay in like the hotel bed and just close my eyes and picture myself in my apartment, just sort of turn my head to the left and imagine what would be there. You know, turn my head to the right and picture my wife sleeping and picture the door that leads to my kitchen, all those things. So like I try to do that just to kind of ground myself because you can get lost in that sort of going back and forth. But even if you're just super busy and still home, I think for me personally is, you know, keep a very clean calendar. Make sure your calendar has literally everything you're supposed to do in it. So you, if it's not in my calendar, I'll forget to do it. Like I'm surprised I don't put peeing and pooping in my calendar. Like uh-huh. honestly, if I don't put it in there, I'll forget to do it. So for me, like making sure whether it's a schedule or a list, whatever keeps that. And then don't forget to add in things that are important to you. Like my, you know, my mother uh, was in a hospital, not anything terrible, nothing bad. She's fine. But like, you know, put something in there to like reach out to her to be like, Hey, how are you? Just to keep yourself like, you know, a lot of people define themselves by their work. Like, you know, if all of a sudden acting took off and you're on a, a major movie and sitcoms and stuff, you know, you would be, you'd want to deep dive as much of that of yourself into that as possible. And you sort of forget that there's all these people in the wings just waiting to hear from you and things like that. So I try, you know, having a wife who's from Jersey makes it easy because she'll tell you right away if all of a sudden, you know, you've gotten too big for yourself, which I love. Um, things like that. Like I don't have healthy habits as far as like eating and stuff. I do intermittent fasting. That's how I lost all the weight. So it's it's actually been great because it's less time I have to eat. I can be busier. I barely have time to eat as it is. Uh, and you know, when you're on the road and stuff, the only options to eat are terrible. So this has actually made it a little bit easier, but, um, for myself, I think, you know, a lot of other comedians like to exercise or like to have a hobby separate from comedy. Like my friends will play instruments or, or uh, paint or something. Personally, for me, like the podcast has taken up so much of my time that that's become my like professional hobby. You know, like we tour so, so much. Comedians have a podcast now too. Yeah, I think there's nothing better than having. You know, how do you keep your fans entertained? You know, I think having something for them to be able to hear you when you're not in their in their town, and you know, having a way for them to connect with you and to to remind them of who you are before you come back to their city. And you know, as a comedian, we you know, as a comedian, I kind of understand that like. I'll be traveling for the majority of my life, which is fine. I love it. I've performed in Ireland, in England, Spain, you know, all over the U.S., uh, the Caribbean. Like, I'm cool with that. Canada, I'm cool with all of that. I want to be traveling as much as possible. So for me, like, something like a podcast that also gets me on the road, gets me the opportunity to do stand-up in other cities that I haven't been booked at, gets me opportunities to be in front of audiences. That's what I want. So I think the healthiest thing you can do throughout all that is making sure you're taking the time off that you need, which was something that I think when I first started getting really busy, I didn't realize I needed just the time to sort of reconnect with my home and just sort of just be not a comic for a day or two, right. which is huge because as comedians were on stage seven days a week. I think that's super important. And I think that's healthier than any salad you could eat in an airport. You know right. what I mean? No, like, absolutely. You know, and you know, I don't think people like a lot of comedians and people who are alone a lot, cause you know, you don't realize you're on stage. You're the most important thing. And, Appleton, Wisconsin. You're the most important thing in Appleton, Wisconsin for an hour. And everyone loves you. And then everyone leaves the show telling you how great you are. And people want to buy you drinks. And then they all go home. And then you go to a hotel room by yourself. It's sad. It, 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 immediately, it's like a crash of energy. It's like, the, it's like someone shut off a roller coaster. You know what I mean? And you're stuck on it. It's sad. You know. So a lot of people will turn to drugs. A lot of people will turn to other things like writing and stuff. You know, personally, for me, I like to reach out to, to friends or, or my wife and talk to them. Or, you know, some people like to do sit-ups and stuff because that sends, you know, like the... the Exhausting. What's that the, like, yeah, you exhaust yourself, but it's also like the dopamine reaction oh, you get to it, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's sort of that. Some people will go like jog at the you know treadmill at two in the morning in the hotel. Whatever you need to do, just make sure you do something. You know, mm. like you know, I you know whatever. If it's masturbate, whatever you got to do, <laughs> you know, to sort of put yourself in a position where you're not going out and searching for a different high or doing something right. stupid. You know, and I think that's you know a lot of actors and stuff will talk about how to be healthy, and for them, it's like you know, yoga or, you know, meditation. I think that's, you know, as big of a brood as I am, I understand the importance of meditation. I may not do it all the time, but I understand the importance of it. Just do something that grounds yourself, that brings you back to reality. Because it is a big, I mean, I've talked to Broadway actors and they say it's the same thing. Dude, you're on stage, it's great. Everyone's waiting for you when you leave and they want to get pictures, you autograph, and you're amazing. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're on a subway. You know yeah. what I mean? You're just a human being. And what do you do now? You know, or maybe but you're back in your ego. car. Yeah, it's tough. It's really difficult. I don't ever have a problem with those things. And this was difficult for me to get over. So I think for me, I think the most important thing was text my wife like, yo, you're still awake. Can we talk? Maybe FaceTime or, you know, I'll go finish writing a script or something like I'll have something to work on, which reminds me like you ain't that big. You ain't that important, you know, or I'll edit a video for my podcast, things like that. You know, that I think that's the most healthy is like, Get right in your mind and don't forget there's a family waiting for you. Even if you don't have family, if you have a friend or a roommate, there's somebody whose life is different that you're not there. Reach yeah. out to that person, connect with them. I love that so much. And you talked about, you know, your wife being gone for, you know, being at home for a month. I feel like I, I relate to that so much because, you know, my partner, like we said, oh, three months in Chicago and then. I get there, oh, one week, I have to go to New York, and then I'm there for six days, and I'm like, I have to go back to New York, and I don't know how long I'll be here for, and it's like, this, this, even though my boyfriend is extremely supportive, and he's like, no, I know you gotta do what you gotta do, like, there's still that underlying, like, I know he's sad without me, and I, I feel yeah, it's tough. that guilt of like, I want so bad to be there with you, but I can't miss out on this opportunity, and it's like, how do you... How do you not feel that guilt? And I know for men, I, I know they say, you know, it's, you know, as a woman, it's harder because, you know, we, we have to, I don't know, sometimes women deal with more of that guilt. I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't know. How do you deal with that? I think I, I think I deal with, I don't I wouldn't say it's the same. I mean, I don't know what kind of guilt you would go through, but uh, for me, it feels like I'm sort of sliding the person I'm with. In this case, it's my wife. I think for me, is I, you know, I understand these are the ends to a mean, you know, when I'm touring theaters, you know, I'll be gone one weekend out of every month and I'll make the same amount of money as I would as if I worked a full-time job and stand up and all these other things. You make a ton of money when you do theaters. So like for me, like it's all ends to a mean. Like I think part of the only time that this has ever gotten in the way of our relationship is when I've realized that, but I've like failed to communicate that with my, with my partner. So like, I know, all right, I'm going and I'm on the, I'm on the road for a month and a half. And you know what? Not every city is going to be as lucrative as the other. So I'm not going to be making the same amount of money. I wouldn't try to stay home. But the opportunity to be in front of these fans is too important to say no. I would do that sometimes. I would do that even if it wasn't a full month and a half. But I would fail to communicate what my plan is to, to my wife. Mm. Those moments, I think that's when I feel guilt is when you're like, damn, I didn't do, I wasn't smart enough to, to be in the moment before then and be like, yo, I should probably bring you into what my plans are here. And I think that that's what's important. It's like, just sort of, you know, a lot of comedians, when they get big, they leave their wives and stuff. Mm. So like, you know, as long as I'm continuously communicating with my wife, like my plan is for us to be successful, not for me to be successful. And she has a bunch of stuff that she's doing on her own. She's a great photographer and she's got like, you know, she's doing like these incredible things in the restaurant world. Like 
you know, when you become successful, that's both of us. Like we both right. get to sort of revel in it. We both get to, you know, sort of uh, enjoy the, the fruits of that labor. So like we're both doing this for each other, but there's times where each of us have to remind the other person like, yeah, all right, I'm going to go do these things, but here's why I'm doing it. Here's what I hope right. to get out of it. Here's what my manager is saying I should do. Here's what my agent is saying I should do. And then here's what I'm going to do. And here's what we can do. Like those types of things, just keeping them involved. I think that, re- that relieves a lot of the guilt because it's like, yo, you don't just go like, hey, I'm going to war. See you later. You know, right. you're like, yo, I'm going to be in Afghanistan. I'm going to be here. Like those types of things, like just that little bit of extra, you know, I send her a drop pin of every, of every hotel I'm in. And, you know, here's the number of the hotel in case of an emergency. It's like that constant connection, just making sure that she knows, even though I'm gone, we're still tethered. That to me is the most significant. And like leaving for an audition, dude, I had to leave, you know, I couldn't go to her sister's, I'm not her cousin's like, you know, uh, wedding because I had a big audition. And, you know, the family doesn't get it and they never will. They think of me as taking advantage of their niece or daughter. I get it. I'm never going to, I'm never going to prove them different until I'm rich and successful. Hopefully that happens. Um, I and I could care less if, yeah, I, I thank you, but I could care less if they feel retribution or not. Like I could care less. It's for me. It's for her. But right. my, as long as my wife understands and as long as she's sort of in agreement that like, yeah, this is too big of an opportunity to miss. And, you know, I ended up getting the gig, which was great. Congratulations. So and thank you. Yeah. So it was worth it. And it paid well. And, you know, when it comes out, I'll be able to talk about it. And oh, yeah. it's exciting. But you know, for the most part, imagine I didn't get it. And imagine right. I just came back like, yo, I missed the wedding for an audition. I didn't get it. Like, well, whatever. Maybe I impressed the casting director. And I'm like, something else. I don't know. There's a lot that goes into that. But I think as long as she's aware, and even if she's like, look, I don't like it, but I understand it, that's enough for me to be like, okay, cool. You're ride or die, you know? Right. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's so, 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 so good. Having that constant communication with your partner. I love that. So advice to Absolutely. your partner, advice to your younger self, what would you do? I mean, I'm not saying you have to do your life differently, obviously, but I'm saying, what would you, what would you have said to your younger self? Um, if you could meet him today? Um, nothing. I, nothing at all. I'd say you'll, you'll know what to do when you get there. Like there's, I don't, I, I don't subscribe to, you know, um, I mean, you know, whatever, maybe don't go to that party, you know, when I was 16, <laughs> like, that's just going to cause a lot of trouble at home. Um, I personally, every, everything that, you know, every, every little thing from, you know, the time, you know, I stapled my finger, you know, to the time, you know, I said no to an organization and maybe I should have said yes and taken that job. All those things, it all led me to here. So right. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, even if you made a stupid mistake, even if you, you know, you, you, you cheated on someone you love and, and it fucked everything up, whatever, like you're here now. And like that, that was part of what you were supposed to do. Like, right. you know, what if I would have never gone, uh, you know, what if, you know, whatever, you know, I tell my younger self, like, you know, be more in the moment or something. And that causes me to not be at that party where I met my future wife, you know? Right. So like for me personally, like I don't, I don't subscribe to that theory. I think the only thing I would tell my young, first of all, imagine you met, when you were a kid, you met an older person who looked a little bit like you, <laughs> and they told you they were, you were them of the future. You said, there's a crazy person here. Um, <laughs> you know, you, my, my family told me not to talk to strangers. And you're a stranger, <laughs> please stop trying to give me advice about the future, you whack job. So, like, <laughs> I don't subscribe to that. I think personally, every little thing from, you know, me drinking coffee during this podcast to some of the biggest life decisions I've made. They all are there for a reason, mm. and there's nothing dumber than thinking. Personally, for me, there's nothing dumber than thinking 
you have control over any of this. You do your best. You don't, don't be stupid. And if you're making mistakes right now that you're thinking, man, I wish I could go back to jail, you can change it right now. Mm -hmm. Stop being an idiot and stop telling yourself that the past is what you should say. No, no, no. There's no such thing as the present. The present leaves as quickly as it comes. You're creating a future every, every time you make a decision, you're creating a future. So go ahead, make a better future for yourself than what you have now. Put down that pipe if that's what you want to stop. You know, pick up a weight if that's what you want to do. Pick up a notebook and learn to write more. Go take a class. And stop. Go do something right now. Stop being an idiot and stop telling yourself, man, I wish I knew this when I was a kid. Well, you know what now? And in 10 years, you're going to wish you made that change right now. Right. I love that so much. Wow, that was very powerful. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So um, no problem. Who, are, who are your role models? Who are people you look up to? I mean, you know, growing up, uh, it would have been anyone with, you know, money. And I used to think I wanted to be a gas station attendant because they had so much money in their pocket, you know, <laughs> like, I, you don't know, you know, it took someone who was an adult going, that's not their money, but it's in their pocket, you know, <laughs> they got you know, it. yeah, the kids from North, you're like, whatever I have it now. So it's mine. You don't realize you got to put that back in the till, but, uh, my my biggest role models are doesn't matter their age if they're younger than me than older than me it's someone doing something that I think is innovative now mm. um, you know when I see people on stage doing stuff and I'm like man like you know Gerard Carmichael his last special not everyone loves but he told the joke about not really caring about having pets and that's something I've struggled with is telling jokes about not even care like I'm indifferent to animals like as far as pets I'm like why would you have something in your house I, I just don't get it I grew up without pets so I don't understand it. And he was able to do it, and it was funny. I'm like, boom, that's something I want to achieve. I want to be able to make something that I can't make funny funnier, you know? And mm. those are the people that are my role models. And also, like, people in other industries. Like, I've learned so much about acting. I've learned so much about chefs. People that are willing to sort of forego what they, you know, a level of relaxation and comfort because they want to achieve something great. You know, my wife said once, what happens if you do all this and – you know, you, you're not one of the greatest comics in the world and, and you know, you didn't make it and, and you die, you know. And I'm like, well, then who cares? You know, would I rather spend my life in a cubicle or, you know, or, you know, doing something? And maybe you're working in a cubicle and you love it. That's amazing. I didn't. I did it and I didn't love it. And I'd much rather be on the road making pittance. You know, I'd much rather be in a, in a studio above Madison Square Garden once a week talking about soccer and getting paid for it yeah. than being in a, in a cubicle being an accountant and hating it or being a salesperson and absolutely despising it. So I think at the end of the day, don't ever think about what could go wrong. Think about what could go right. And that to me, the people who do that, those are my role models. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Jim Carrey said a quote like that one time where it was like, um, you, you either do what you, it was something like you can do what you love and you can fail and you can do something you hate and still fail. So why not go for the thing that you love and fail? You know, and I think, I think just getting up every day and pursuing the thing that you love is success already. I think you're already successful just by stepping out and saying, yeah. this is what I want to do. And, and, and living, and, and living your, 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 your life to your fullest potential, like the fact that you get to go out and have your passions and talk about your passions. So, oh, I'm going to go get to do this and it's my passion. Talk about something I love or, you know, have these who think it's all of these things that you love that you've created for yourself. And I think you're extremely inspiring and just having this conversation with you is was so was so awesome because you know so much about different topics and I find you so so incredibly inspiring and I want to say thank you for that for 
for oh, thank you thank you for having me yeah absolutely i mean we're just going to play our, our word game now so <laughs> our, word we'll game, our word game is very simple i'm just going to say a word and then you can tell me what that word means to you and you could talk about it so the first word i have okay. is happiness uh, happiness is a, it, to me the the word is heavily loaded you know i don't think it's something you achieve i think it's something you experience so mm-hmm. You know, when I think to myself, oh, I'm going to be happy when they be happy right now, you know, find, find something to be happy about, write down the things that you're happy about in your life right now and, and read that list. And, and it's a, it's a state of mind. And I think it makes everything else better. Right. Absolutely. What does family mean to you? Uh, annoying. Uh, is the first <laughs> word that came to my mind, uh, just because they're Cuban and they will not let it go. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I've been a stand-up for 10 years. Actually, in August, will be my 10th anniversary. My mother's still telling people I'm looking for work. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I get it. You know, I, I totally get it. But to me, family is also, that's who you are, you know. And I think that's something that takes so many people so long to understand. When I was a kid, I realized your parents were human beings, not, super, not superheroes. And that let me understand, like, all right, well, my mother is being annoying or, or mean or, you know, makes a mistake. I can't hold it against her. She's just a human being. She's not built to be perfect. None of us are. I, I literally knew that as like a child, that like eight years old, I figured that out. Um, so to me, family is, those are the people that, were, that you come from. Apple trees make apples, you know. If you want to change something, understand that you're going against your DNA. It's going to be tough. Do it though. I'm proud of you if you get a chance to do it. But also if you think you are bigger or better than your family, or if you think you don't need them, you're wrong. You always need some, someone. From that family, you're going to need to find a way to stick in that to or at least someone who knew them. And I think there's nothing better than knowing where you're coming from, whether it's good or bad, because it's going to help guide your decisions in the future. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> I really love that. What does the word love mean to you? Love to me, and this is important. I used to, it kind of goes back to something else. I, I used to do a joke about how dogs don't really love you. They're physically incapable of loving. And I've had these conversations with people who actually love their pets. And, you know, the idea of love, and the one thing, the reason I bring this up is because people, I think, miscommunicate or misunderstand loyalty as love. Mm. Love is something that's so intrinsic. It's hard to really put into words. And I sound cheesy as hell, and I get it. That's not what this voice typically talks like. <laughs> but when I say I love my wife, it doesn't just mean that I'm loyal to her. To me, it's like there's something deeper. There's like, there's a gravitas to her. There's a, there's a connection. There's not just the, I'll kill anyone who tries to harm her. That's part of it. You know, <laughs> I'll kill anyone, you know, who, you know, who harms a friend of mine, you know, right. I love my wife or I love, I have a connection with my wife that I don't think other people, my nephew, when he was born, I immediately got it. I was like, Oh, if somebody makes fun of you, I'll, I'll murder a child in front of their family. You know, like I got it. You know, love to me is something that's like, you know, there's very, as a human being, you, you were born alone and you die alone. And when you die, you're completely alone. It doesn't matter if you're holding somebody's hand or nothing. You are the one who dies, unless, you know, mm-hmm. unless you're in the tragedy. But even then, it's your own experience. Like, there's very few things that you get to be connected to in this world. So if you absolutely love something or someone, there's a connection there that's just hard to explain and that's bigger than even loyalty or it's bigger than, than, than I think even like lust or any of those things. You know, sexual love and, and, and just like the, the deep, deep sea love that says like, yeah, even if this goes wrong, I'm going to stay connected to you forever. Mm. That's, that's bigger. So for me, love is just something you can't explain to me. It's, it's a rope that ties you to someone else. Yeah, and that's it. And it's there. Oh, that's so good. I really like that a lot. 
What does the word faith mean to you? Faith? Faith, yeah. Um, faith to me is just belief, belief in something against all odds. Um, I'm not a very religious person personally. So when I say faith, I mean, I think of faith in myself, faith in my friends, faith in my life, faith in my, um, you know, belief that something's going to work out. I think faith is, is simple. You jump into something with both feet, you know, mm -hmm. hold your nose, close your eyes and just believe that it's going to work out in the end. And I think, you know, you, you never know if it does, but yeah, you know, what do they say? Shoot for the stars. And what's the worst that happens? You hit the moon, you know, yeah. um, believe, you know, for me, faith is my belief in myself, you know, and, and being honest with myself and telling myself, Hey man, you haven't done enough to, to succeed this week. Or, you know, if you really want this thing, you know, you should be doing this. And as much as it might hurt your ego or something else, you got to go do it. I think that's what faith is also. It's just being really brutally honest with yourself. Right. Having those conversations with yourself and being like, this is where you need to be. Right. And what does, this is yeah. the last word. What does the word success mean to you? Uh, success to me is a lot like uh, happiness. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, there's no such thing. Like there's a, maybe for an actor, you know, it's like an Oscar or, you know, whatever, you know, for me as a comic, there is no thing that is, there's no brass ring I could grab. You know, once you do something, you, there's something else you want to do. And I think that that's a lot of people, you know, I think what makes someone a comic is the, makes thing, is the same thing that makes someone a, an entrepreneur is the itch you can never really fully scratch. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no, there's no business, you know, you open Walmart, you'd be like, all right, now I want to go start an Amazon. Like that's how entrepreneurs think. I think for myself, I'm the same way. So when I see success to me, it's, I see success as limiting, um, you know, sort of liabilities, limiting the things that cause stress, whether it's bills, things like that. Mm -hmm. Once those things are taken care of and I can sort of just do the thing I love to do, which is be a standup. I don't have to edit videos anymore for my podcast. I can hire someone to do that. I don't have to worry about this and I have a producer for this and I have an, an assistant and an agent that to me successes getting rid of all the other responsibilities and things around me that I so that I can solely do the one thing I love. Like freedom, that freedom to just be. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's not a house. It's not a yacht. It's none of those things. I don't care if I'm in a tiny apartment, as long as I have enough money to be able to pay everyone around me to do the things I don't want to do. Yeah. And so I could simply focus on the one thing I love that to me is success. Hey, come on. So good. Such a good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing your wisdom, for dropping some knowledge, for making me laugh. Um, I really, really, really appreciate you. Congratulations on all of your success. I, I'm going to pray for you and send so much good vibes on even more success and um, healthy marriage and healthy life and all of the great things that are meant for you. Thank you so much. And go eat meat. <laughs> 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 yeah, my grandmother would love that. <laughs> Absolutely. The pork porks were here specifically no. to feed Cubans. Oh my god, <laughs> pork. My family's like, chicharrón. I'm like, I can't. If you're Cuban and there's not pork in your body, you lose your Cuban card. You immediately become Dominican. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. I can't eat chicharrón. I'm always like, there's gonna be worms in my stomach. <laughs> Oh, every time a pig oinks, I think to myself, like, oh, that's a good, uh, that's a good oh, chuleta. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Thanks Too so fun. much for having me. Thank you so much for being on. There you guys have it. That was episode 30. Wasn't that a kick-ass episode? I found it really, really inspiring. I think, honestly, it's one of the most 
comedic obviously <laughs> episodes I've had but it was so amazing because Alexis is so kind and sweet and energetic and it was just a great flowing conversation you know from being able to chat about food comedy acting you know all of that stuff it was so many different elements that we got to chat about I'm just glad that I was able to share that with you guys I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. If you did, be sure to share it with a friend, right? Like I love sharing podcasts with people. I'm always like, hey, check this out. This might be up your alley. So if you have a friend that's a comedian, an inspiring comedian, or somebody that just needs a good laugh or actually loves food or wants to be on ABC Showcase, who knows? There's so many people you could send this podcast to, so be sure you send it to them. Also, be sure to follow Alexis. I will be posting all of his social media links in the links below so just swipe down so you can check out the notes and all of that will be there so you can follow his journey i hope you guys have a wonderful and beautiful day and as always keep shining